LifeBridge Online on this Memorial Weekend. I hope you're enjoying yourself, and I am glad that you're tuned in here. I'm Pastor Chris, and this is our Discovery Hour, when usually we are meeting with all ages and stages, and we're seeking to bridge the gap between learning and living. Right now would be a great time to like and share this teaching with your Facebook friends. Uh, We want to get the gospel out to as many people as possible during this difficult time. Also, if you want us to pray for you or along the way you think of a prayer request or help in taking next steps, then don't hesitate to fill out the communication card, the connection card that's there in the comments. Also, this Wednesday will be the last day to take the regathering survey. We are planning, preparing, praying, getting ready to regather. We want your input, and so take that online survey. The link is there in your comments. Let's have a word of prayer and just ask Jesus to come, meet with us, prepare our hearts. Father, we come and we thank you on this Memorial Weekend for so many who have given their lives so that we can enjoy freedom in this country. But more than that, we thank you for your son who gave his life, who is the bleeding, substitutionary, sacrificial lamb that we've been studying about in Isaiah 53. And he not only died, but he rose again, and he is seated there at your side, and he is bestowing your blessings upon this world. We ask, meet with us, speak to hearts, and those that are watching now and even later, that you would speak to us in meaningful and life-changing ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last week, uh, we've been in a, for the past few weeks actually, have been in a study called The Gospel According to Isaiah. And we've been moving through Isaiah 53 and through 55, the heart of the book of Isaiah. And for the last few weeks, we've been studying chapter 55. And in fact, last week we studied verses 4 and 5. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Isaiah 55 and let's read verses 3 through 11, so that we can just remind ourselves of what we learned last week. Let's look at that. Isaiah 55, verses 3 through 5. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. And we said that was the new covenant in his blood. According to the faithful mercies that David showed to the Lord, the ideal, sinless, coming son of David. Behold, I have made him, this exalted son of David, a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you. Because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, For he has glorified you. And we saw last week that in those two verses, we saw two reasons why the exalted son of David will succeed in a mission to the Gentiles. If you look at verse 4, 
peoples is mentioned twice. In verse 5, nations are, nation is mentioned twice. And in verse 4, we saw that his mission will succeed because the Lord himself has chosen him uniquely to be the sovereign savior for all peoples. But in verse 5, we see that because he selected him, he has also sent him on a mission to savingly call the nations to himself. And it's just a great verse, verse 5. He calls and they run to him. And at the end of verse 5, we see the reason they run to him is because the Father has glorified glorified him. In other words, the nations don't run for salvation because of who they are. They run because of who the Son, the suffering servant, the sovereign Savior is. And so that's what we saw last week. But reaching the nations is only half of the suffering servant, the sovereign Savior, the exalted Son of David. It's only half of His mission. Reaching the nations is only half. In fact, turn back to Isaiah 49 Verse 6, turn back to Isaiah 49, and we're going to look at verses 5 and 6. And I want you to see that in Isaiah 49, 5 through 6, we see the twofold mission of this exalted son of David. Notice in verse 5, chapter 49. Now says the Lord who formed me. This is the, the servant speaking. The Lord, the Father, has formed me from the womb to be his servant. Why? To bring back Jacob to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, glorified as we just read in Isaiah 55. And my God is my strength. I am totally obedient and dependent on my father. Therefore, he has glorified me. Therefore, my mission is to restore the nation of Israel. But look at verse 6. He says, The Father, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And you know what's interesting? That last phrase, to the ends of the earth, is the exact same phrase that we will see in Acts 1.8. You shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so what we see here is that there's a twofold mission. Restore Israel. But that's, is that too small a thing? Let me do something bigger. Let me also enable you, send you, to reach the nations. So here's what I want to do this morning. On this holiday weekend, I want us to see how this prediction in Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 55, how it will be fulfilled and where is Israel and the church? What are their roles in this fulfillment? So here's what here's our question for this morning. How will his mission to restore Israel and reach the nations be fulfilled? How's this prophecy going to be fulfilled? And what's the role of Israel? And what's the role of the church? After all, these are Old Testament prophecies given by the Lord through Isaiah 
to Judah and Jerusalem. And yet when we go to the book of Acts in the New Testament, we see the church fulfilling this mission to reach the nations. So what's up with that? Well, here's how we're going to find out. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Or, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1, 1 through 11. Acts chapter 1, 1 through 11. And this is where we're going to find our answer. And this is where we're going to be for the rest of our study uh, this morning. So, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The first account that I, this is Luke, composed Theophilus, the man he's writing to, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, Gospel of Luke, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. The first thing you start seeing here is here's the risen Lord who's commanding and giving orders. Isaiah 55. Verse 4, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering. Woo, Isaiah 53, humiliation, suffering, exaltation, resurrection. And he did this with many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God, the topic that Isaiah is filled with. And, and here is that anointed, Davidic, exalted king of David who is now teaching his servants, his disciples, about the kingdom of God. Verse 4, gathering them together, again, he commanded them, sovereign commands of the risen king. He, can't, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for what the father had promised which he said you heard which he said you heard from me for John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the holy spirit not many days from now here we see the faithful witness of Isaiah 55 communicating new covenant blessings and saying I'm the mediator of the new covenant blessings to you and then we come to verse 6 so, when they had come together, and this apparently is the last time they met before Jesus ascended. So, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs or ages or dispensations which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses right there. Faithful witness, both in Jerusalem and in and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up. While they were looking on, and a cloud received him, literally came up underneath him and took him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, as he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go up into heaven. Now let me 
we're going to dive into this. But let me make two disclaimers very quickly. First of all, we're skipping over a whole lot of history and a whole lot of biblical revelation. And I will not and I cannot dot every I and cross every T. In fact, you will have more questions at the end of this than I can answer in this lesson. Secondly, I want you to know up front, I humbly admit that other godly men will interpret Acts chapter 1 here differently from what I'm about to show you. And that's okay, okay as long as we keep two things in mind. And here's the first one. Some interpretations are better than others. Why? Because they're more accurate to what the scriptures actually teach. Now, you'll have to judge today if what I'm sharing with you is accurate to the scriptures. Keep your eyes on your Bible. Here's the deal. Don't fo- we should always follow the scriptures rather than just a, our favorite scholar or our favorite teacher, even if that teacher is me. We are to follow the scriptures where they lead us. Also, I want to say... Yeah, there's different interpretations, but some interpretations are limited limited by man-made systems that are imposed on the Scriptures. And so I want to remind you, submit yourself to the Scriptures, even if it doesn't fit neatly into the system that you have been taught or the system that you grew up with or, or the one that your favorite teacher uh, espouses. And so the idea is there's different opinions, but that shouldn't shy us away from studying and knowing what we believe, what you believe. So let's dive in here. The disciples' question is found in verse 6, and the risen king's answer is given to us in verses 7 and 8. So let's dive in. The disciples' question is not carnal but spiritual. That's the first point I want you to see. That in verse 6, when they ask this question, is this the time when Israel's going to be restored? This question is not carnal, but spiritual. Look in your Bibles at verse 6. Lord, is now the time when you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And so very quickly, I want to give you four facts about this question. And the first fact I want to give you is this. This question is controversial. This question is controversial. In fact, I have up here on the screen, you're going to see that this question they ask raises all sorts of controversial questions. For instance, is there a future for the nation of Israel in God's kingdom plan of redemption? Does Jesus fulfill all of God's covenant promises in a way that permanently sets aside ethnic Israel? Does the church forever replace Israel as God's covenant people? And the last one that that springs out of this question that they ask, is there a future restoration for the nation of Israel even though the church presently enjoys Israel's covenant blessings in Christ. Now, I'm just telling you right up front, you might say, I don't even know about this controversy. Okay, 
but many people do. These questions are controversial. In fact, I, I even know just asking them, just even the way I worded them could cause controversy or uh, frustration with people, much less how I am going to answer them. But here's what I want you to know, that even though this question that they ask is theologically a controversy, I want you to know this. You may not like controversy, and you may want to avoid such questions because they can be decisive, divisive, and they have been divisive in church history, past and present, and more than likely in the future until we finally find out exactly what the Lord is going to do to fulfill these prophecies. You might think that such questions are minor, and we should major on the majors. In other words, let's move on and stay on mission. You might think, if so many godly men and women disagree, why should we invest the time studying it? But here's what I want you to understand. Don't let differing interpretations among godly people scare you away from studying the Bible for yourself. Differing views do not call for less study. They call us to more study so that we can know what we believe the Scriptures teach. Also, don't let differing interpretations make you skeptical that you personally can come to a settled conviction. I believe you can. The key is to hold our convictions with a gracious humility that doesn't cause division and strife. So, the first fact I want you to know about this question is it's controversial. But the second fact I want you to see is that this question is logical. Now, why do I say that? Well, look in your Bibles at verse 6. The New American Standard begins with this connection, so. New King James begins with the connection, therefore. Here's the idea. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is clearly telling us that verses 1 through 5 logically led to this question. In fact, one famous New Testament scholar, I. Howard Marshall, said this, Here we have a question about how soon the end is to come, which was natural enough in the context of these resurrection appearances of Jesus. It would be very natural to wonder whether these marked the beginning of the last stage in God's plan. What is Marshall saying? He's simply saying what you can see in your own Bible. This is a logical question in light of spending 40 days in the presence of the risen king and going through an Old Testament study of the kingdom of God. So it's a controversial question, but it's a logical one. And third fact I want you to see is that this is a biblical question. The end of Luke's gospel and the beginning of the book of Acts fits the flow of Isaiah 53 through 55. I wish we had the time to take you through this in depth, but I want you to realize that the end of Luke talks about the suffering and exaltation 
that was predicted in the Old Testament. And if you've been with us in this study, you know that's Isaiah 53. But also, we have the risen king here in Acts 1 and in Luke 24 promising some of the premier blessings of the new covenant. That was Isaiah 54. New covenant blessings, come and feast. And then, in these last 40 days, the resurrected, victorious king is about to send the disciples on a mission to the nations. Well, that's Isaiah 55, verses 4 and 5 that we just studied last week. Here's my point. What could be more logical from the biblical perspective, particularly the book of Isaiah that we've been studying, than for these men to ask, Lord, is now the time when you are restoring as the risen victorious king, as the faithful witness that Isaiah talked about, is now the time when you're going to restore that part of your mission, restore the kingdom to Israel. Remember, the mission was twofold. Granted, they're not thinking right now about reaching the nations, but it is biblical to ask the question, is now the time when you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? One more fact I want you to see about this question, and it's this. This question is spiritual. So it's not only logical and biblical, but it's spiritual. And again, if I had the time, I'd take you back to the beginning of Luke, where for three chapters, Luke 1 through 3, godly, spirit-filled men and women, Zacharias, Anna, Simeon, are all looking for and longing for, literally it said, the redemption of Israel. In fact, Simeon is described as a saint, an Old Testament saint, who was looking for the consolation of Israel. That's a word for comfort. Whoa, wait a minute. The last half of Isaiah 40 to 66 is all about comfort. Comfort my people. And then here in Acts 1, they bring it up again. But even after Jesus teaches them in Acts 3, Peter preaches it again. And then in Acts 13, on the mission to the Gentiles, Paul starts quoting the mission of the suffering servant. And then in Romans chapter 9 through 11, he takes three whole chapters to talk about the restoration, the re Redemption of the nation of ethnic Israel. So here's the bottom line. This question is controversial, but it's also logical, biblical, and it is a spiritual question. Now, let's take a time out here, and you might be saying, Chris, why spend so much time on that? Well, here's why. The reason I'm spending the time on this is because many who see no future for the nation of Israel in God's plan claim that this question is misguided and wrong-headed. In other words, this isn't the biblical question they should be asking. This isn't even a spiritual question they should be asking. These dummies are missing it. And that's basically what some commentators say. For instance, John Calvin famous famously said about this question 
There are as many errors in this question as there are words. Basically, they messed up on every word that they said. Another expositor who I have his books, I've learned a lot from him, but who I think is wrong on this point says, from our vantage point, these disciples sound hopelessly naive. They still seem earthbound and parochial in their expectations. He goes on to say, it may not seem, it may seem almost incredible to us that the disciples could get things so utterly wrong at this point, but they did. He goes, finally, he claims this. It's very clear that the disciples did not understand the nature and the purposes of Jesus Christ for them and for the world. Despite all the teaching that they had received directly from the master teacher himself, they were astonishingly slow learners. Another expositor said, the questions, this question, verse 6, must have filled Jesus with dismay. They were still so lacking in perception. Well, who's right? Is it a spiritual? Is it a good question? Or is it a bad question? Misguided, wrong-headed, coming from the wrong motives, and just utterly blowing it after 40 days of learning from the risen king. Well, as one of these men admits, he is following a certain theological system and viewing this question from that perspective. But listen, we don't determine scripture by imposing a system on it. We don't determine whether something is biblical because it fits neatly into a system that we've been taught. And it doesn't matter what that system is. No, we learn what Scripture teaches by comparing Scripture with Scripture and studying the text in context. So here's what I want to do. I just want to make five quick observations about this question. And I think if we just honestly look at the question and look at it in context, we'll come to see that this really is a solid, sound, scriptural question to ask. So let's begin with the question in verse 6. The first word they mention is Lord. So these guys, they know who they're talking to. It's the risen Lord who's about to ascend into heaven. He's the Son of God. They're submitted to Him. So they're not like rebelling against His teaching on the kingdom. And then they say this, is it at this time? And really, all they're asking is, is this the point in history? Is this the precise time when you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're simply asking, are Isaiah's prophecies and the prophets, are these coming true now regarding the kingdom? Let's be clear about what they're not doing. They're not setting dates and they're not doing it. So they're not asking this question so they can sell books and make a movie. Okay. Uh, they are not trying to manipulate the Lord to satisfy their carnal desires. They're submitted to him and they're not calling for a political revolution wherein they can be the revolutionary heroes that overthrow Rome. 
Why do I say that? Well, look at the very next thing they say. You are restoring. Is it at this time you are restoring it? They're not saying, hey, we got the guns and we're ready to overthrow Rome. They're saying, no, Lord, this is a work that only you can do. You're the faithful witness. You're the victorious king. You're the exalted son of David. And you are the one who will restore Israel. Is now the time that you are beginning to do this. And that verb for restoring is present tense. Is it presently now taking place or about to take place? And then fourthly, the kingdom, restoring the kingdom to Israel. I've tried to show you and I can't take you through all the passages, but in Luke-Acts, this the idea of restoring the kingdom, redeeming Israel as a nation, is at the beginning of Acts, or beginning of Luke, at the end of Luke, at the beginning of Acts, and on into Acts. And then finally, to Israel. There's no doubt that they're asking about the ethnic nation of Israel. So I would put forth to you that the disciples' question, though controversial, is not carnal, it's not misguided. It's not wrong-headed. It's logical, it's biblical, and it's spiritual. So that's the question. Let's see how the risen king answers it. And so the second thing I want you to see in verses 7 and 8 is the risen king's answer is not a rejection, but a redirection. He's not rejecting what they have asked about restoration. It's not a rejection, but it is a redirection. So look at verses 7 and 8 again. Look at verse 7 there in your Bibles. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs or ages, which the Father has fixed by His own authority, but here's what you do know, and here's what you should be doing. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So here's the king's answer. He answers twofold. First half of the answer is in verse 7. Second half is in verse 8. So let's look at verse 7. The Lord does not reject their question by rebuking them. Notice, he, he, he doesn't, contrary to how some take the Lord's answer, this isn't a rebuke of the disciples for asking about the restoration of the kingdom. Jesus doesn't reject their concern about restoration, but he does correct the timing of the question. So he doesn't reject the concern of the question, but he does correct the timing in the question. He doesn't rebuke them for being misguided and wrong-headed. You just don't see that in verse 7. In other words, I don't see in verse 7 him saying, your motives are all wrong. You're being too carnal. You're too political. You're too nationalistic. You're just misguided. Stop being so illogical, so unbiblical, so unspiritual. I don't see him saying that they're wrong-headed. Stop being so stubborn in this hope for a restoration 
of Israel to the kingdom of God. Stop that. It is so wrong-headed. Instead, he actually answers their question about the timing. He just doesn't answer it as they might have expected. So let's look at his answer. The first thing that he says to them is, the timing of coming ages is not for you to know. So they said, Lord, is it at this time? And he says, it's not for you to know any of the times when God fulfills his prophecies. Notice what he does. He expands their question about this time, verse 6, and he broadens it and makes it plural. It is not for you to know times and seasons and ages. It's not for you to know. When you see these two words, times and seasons, or times and ages, when you see them together like this in Scripture, and they're found several times several times in Scripture this way, it points to a period of time when God's prophecies are going to be fulfilled. And basically, Jesus is not rebuking them for asking the question about restoration. As much as it's saying, it's not for you to know the exact times when these future kingdom age will come about. So, if that's not what they're supposed to know, what's the issue here? Well, look at number two. The timing of coming ages is not for you to know because the timing of coming ages is sovereignly fixed by the Father alone. And I think this is interesting. Yes, he corrects them. It's not for you to know when my prophecies exactly will be fulfilled, but be assured they are fixed by the Sovereign Father. So it's like he's saying this. I see what he's saying is, look, glad you asked, but only the Father knows the answer to that question. Or we could say it this way, good question, guys, but that's the Father's business. Your business lies elsewhere. You know, it's interesting when we compare uh, Jesus' answer to what he had taught them earlier in the Gospels. We find in Matthew 24, 36, and in Mark 13, 32, Jesus said this, But of that day, the day of his second coming, of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now stop and think about that. Not only do these guys, is it not for these guys to know, and it's not for us to know, but even the Son of God, when He ascends up to heaven, He's going to see, He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and He waits for the Father to say, Now is the time for the kingdom season to be finally fulfilled on earth, on earth. You see, Jesus doesn't deny a future for Israel. But he does make clear there is a delay, a different focus for this present time. So let me just stop 
and make a couple points of application for us. First of all, I think we should take away from this that it's a good reminder not to be obsessed with timing and setting dates for prophetic fulfillment. So if somebody's trying to sell you a book that the Lord's going to return, in fact, you can get some cheap books on sale at used books on Amazon of the Lord returning in 1992 or 2001 or you name it, okay? Don't buy into that. Don't waste your money on that. And certainly don't propagate that kind of idea. Also, I think this is a good reminder that our focus isn't to be on when, the exact time when he's coming, but the focus should be we should be ready whenever he comes, whenever it is. So the focus is, is he coming? Is he coming not? Is this pandemic a part of a biblical prophecy? Does this mean the second coming is going to happen real soon? That's not the point. The point is whenever it comes, and it could happen today, are you ready? Are you doing the Father's business that He has called you to do? Now, nevertheless, even though He doesn't rebuke them for the question about restoration, He does redirect them. So here's the second point I want you to see. The Lord does redirect them by refocusing them on reaching the nations. That's verse 8. Verse 8 begins with a strong but. It's a strong contrast. Look, it's not for you to know what the Father has fixed. Listen, guys, it's going to happen. The Father has fixed a future restoration for the nation of Israel, just as Isaiah predicted. It's going to happen. It's fixed. But here's what you need to be focused on. Because what's about to begin is the age of the church. The birth of this body of Christ where Jew and Gentile are one in the risen king. He's going to come up. The spirit is going to come down. The church will be born in Acts 2 and they are to be on a mission. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses just as I was the faithful witness. Now I send you to be the faithful witness to the nations and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth the very quote from Isaiah 49 6 you see the servant has come and he's been sent as the sovereign savior and now he's going up to be exalted and he's sending us as his servants he's sending us now to be the faithful witness to the coming kingdom and the fact that the king has already come and he's exalted at the right hand of the father and he is bestowing new covenant blessings. And guess what? The greatest blessing of all is the indwelling Holy Spirit because when you have the spirit, you have a new heart. And when you have a new heart, you have a new start and you have forgiveness of sins. And it means that you are a part of the spiritual kingdom that exists now. And you will have an inheritance in the coming future kingdom when he comes again. And it means that you are a new creation in the coming new creation. Do you realize Jesus rose on Sunday, the first day 
of the new creation week. The new creation has begun. We're living in the now and the not yet. And yet the Lord is saying to you, basically, guys, good question. It's going to happen. There will be a restoration for the nation of Israel. The kingdom will be restored. It was promised clearly there in Isaiah. But guys, right now, I'm going to go up and be exalted. And here's the problem. Israel as a nation has rejected me. And they're going to continue to reject me. And so I'm going up and I'm going to send down new covenant blessings. And anyone of Jew, Gentile, any nation, any ethnicity, doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how sinful you have been. Isaiah 54, the invitation, Isaiah 54 and 55, the invitation is to everyone. Come unto me. And so what's going on? He's saying, guys, here's what you need to focus on. The king has come and the king is exalted. And I want you to call out kingdom subjects from among all the nations. And you're going to gather in kingdom outposts that are called local churches. And you're going to stay on mission and you're going to gather and scatter. You're going to gather and scatter over the world. And you're going to call out my subjects with the good news that the king has come. And he has been crucified as a blood sacrifice for your sins. And he's risen from the dead. And he's exalted to the right hand of the Father to be that sovereign Savior for all peoples. Come, come. It's free. Because the price has been paid by the blood of the Lamb. Here's the bottom line. He's saying to them, You've been blessed to be a blessing to the nations. I'm sending you on a mission to the ends of the earth. The Father sent me on this mission. Now I'm sending you. But one day Israel will fulfill their mission to go to the nations. But in the meantime, here's what you need to be doing. Number one, this is your mission as my servants. Be faithful witnesses to the end of the earth. I mean, it's just, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Isaiah 55, he was sent, he came, and now he's sending us as his people. Number two, this is your mission in the now, not yet. Isn't it interesting that he gives them this mission and he says, look, the future restoration is going to come. I'm going up and one day... According to verse 11, I'm going to come back down. But in between me going up to establish a spiritual rule over all the earth, I'm going to come back and establish that physical fulfillment for the kingdom for Israel. But in that now, not yet, you are to stay on mission. You are to stay on mission. And then number three, this is your mission According to Luke chapter 21, verse 24, this is your mission until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Or, as Paul says in Romans 11, until the full number of Gentiles come in. Listen, there's a span of time, 
And it could be up today. It could be up tomorrow. It could be up next week. We don't know. It's been over 2,000 years. But in this in-between time, it's not a time of restoring the kingdom to Israel. It's a time of harvesting the nations of the earth. This is the time of the Gentiles when they are ruling and trampling the city of Jerusalem. And the nation of Israel is scattered. But God is calling. And when the full number of Gentiles come in, at that point is when he will return. And when he returns, the nation of Israel is going to look up and they're going to see the one whom they have pierced. And then they're going to repent. And when they repent, times of refreshing, the kingdom age will come. The nations will rejoice. Christ will be ruling on this earth. We, the church, as the bride of Christ, will be taking part in that rule in that kingdom. And that day is coming. Here's the reality. Then at the return of Christ, when Israel finally repents and the kingdom is fully restored, times of refreshing will come and the redeemed nation of Israel will also be his witnesses to the Gentile nations. So here's what I want to end with. I want you to turn back in your Bibles to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. And we're going to look at a couple verses in Isaiah 43. We're just going to read them. So stay focused. And then we're going to read a couple verses in Isaiah 44. And I want you to see something very important. Because in Isaiah 43 and 44, Isaiah predicts, that in the future kingdom, in the future kingdom age, the nation of Israel will be witnesses. So what's the idea? Now we are his witnesses to the nations. But at that day, when he comes back, they repent. They will then fulfill their role as his witnesses. So look at Isaiah 43 and let's read Verses 6. Let's look, begin at verse 6. Isaiah 43, verse 6. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Same phrase, Acts 1.8. But he's calling the nation of Israel after they've repented. And then look at, drop down to verse 10. What's he say to this nation of Israel, regathered, restored, reunited, redeemed? You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. This isn't the church. This isn't the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a redeemed and restored nation of Israel. You are my witnesses, my servant whom I've chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. And they're finally going to realize on that day in the future that Jesus is the I Am. He is the, the Savior. Verse 12, It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you, so you are my 
witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. I am the I am God who keeps my promises even to my disobedient yet repentant people of Israel. Turn over to Isaiah 44 and we'll wrap up with this. Isaiah 44, let's read verses 1 through 5. Look at Isaiah 44, verse 1. But now listen, O Jacob, okay, ethnic Israel, O Jacob my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob my servant. This isn't the church. This isn't the servant of Isaiah 53. It's the nation of Israel. Listen, my servant, and you, Jeshuron, whom I have chosen, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. New covenant blessings. And notice, we know it, because look at verse 3, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants, and they will spring up many, uh, spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. Why? Because they've repented. They've been redeemed. They've been restored. But notice verse 8. Drop down to verse 8, and this is our last verse. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it to you? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. And here's the thing. The context of that verse is, look, I'm a God who can predict the future. And I'm the God who keeps my promises. Listen, beloved. If God can break His promises to Israel, then He can break them to His church. But if God's going to keep His promises to the church, He will keep His promises to the nation of Israel. And the world will be blessed for it. It will bring the joys of the kingdom. So I end with this this morning. The risen Lord will reach the nations. And when he does, he will then restore Israel to the kingdom. So here's two things for us to take away. First of all, let's be faithful witnesses. Let's be faithful witnesses in Christ. He was faithful unto death and has been exalted to the right hand. In Christ, our job is to be faithful witnesses to the unreached nations until he comes back. Will we be found faithful in sharing the good news? Second thing I want to leave you with is let's be bold witnesses by His Spirit. You know why we can be bold? Because our God is a promise-keeping God. And He is going to keep His promises to Israel. That means we can count on Him to keep His promises to us and we can face any obstacles. We can make it through a pandemic. We can make it through lockdown. We will be regathered. 
And God keeps his promises. Can I get an amen in the comments? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, I thank you that you are the God that you have revealed yourself to be. You are a promise maker, but more importantly, you're a promise keeper. And Lord, though this doctrine in eschatology is not real popular right now, and many see it as divisive or, or a minor issue, Lord, it's vital because it reveals your character and it's the destiny of your eternal plan and of your redeemed people. So I pray we've learned today. But more than anything, I pray that we've seen you large and in charge and near and dear to us in the person of Jesus. And Lord, we say with the Spirit, even so, come, come Lord Jesus. Reach the nations, redeem Israel, establish your kingdom, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Hey, see you next week, same time, same place, Lord willing. God bless you.